G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Ardit. Today is Wednesday. Wednesday? Isn't it normally Tuesday? Today is Wednesday, the 16th of August and our topics this week are... Goldburn residents have invested in a community-owned solar farm. What are the details going on then? And this week, big news, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has asked for a public holiday if the Matildas win the World Cup. Of course, we'll have our two ticks town talk. Then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with Ardit and finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, why are we recording on a Wednesday? I've been really crook over the last couple of days with a bit of a bug. Uh, thankfully, it's nothing too serious, but we are recording a day later than we normally do. But enough about me, Ardit. How are you going today? I'm travelling well. I'm glad to hear you're on the uh, tail end of you, your bug. Um, My man yeah, flew. Yeah, yeah, your man flew. Oh, what you were saying before uh, in our pre-podcast chat, well, I think you had reason enough to not feel a happy chappy. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, I've been in, in good good health. I uh, went and saw an, an exhibition by... Uh, a woman, Leela Jeffries, who was a new name to to me, was one that my wife had had spotted. She does uh, like very high definition photographs of of birds. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure how she she does it. It seems like she has them in a, a particular area, and I'm I'm guessing behind the scenes she's got one of those ridiculous. Um, Hasselblad's the only only uh, camera I know that has in that medium format. There's probably a whole lot of them, and I don't even know if Hasselblad's still a thing. I haven't gotten into photography for a long time, but the uh, the reasoning behind it is that each bird's got a little bit of red, and it's to symbolise the um, uh, destruction of the environment. It started to go into a whole lot of uh, esoteric stuff by the it, it was it was in an art gallery at um, we went over to to South Yarra that we haven't been before and the art gallery was called Mars and we went went in and they had the yeah it was it was a nice it was a nice looking uh, space but the the young woman that who was there at the gallery came up to us and she had these these wild looking eyes uh, really really intense and she was a bit of a close stander as well and she looked at us she said have you ever been to mars before <laughs> and she was just so so earnest that night i had to sort of suppress having a little bit of a laugh myself she said oh, and started talking about the works and that but i said to my wife afterwards i said that was that was a bit bizarre. It was just such a such a weird inter <laughs> weird interaction. But yeah, it was it was a it was a very good in, it, it was a good exhibition. It was just what a, a fun one, a fun thing to uh, do. I think I might have mentioned um, Thursdays. We'd like to uh, like to go out and do something. Try and specifically set it aside for Adventure Day, as we call it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's uh, that's what I that's one of the memorable things I've been up to. The rest of the thing has been um, yeah, bit of gardening, bit of archery, bit of this, that, and the the other. Uh, aside from aside from being a bit crook, you have been up to anything else? Um, no, just just dramas around the home. Uh, but nothing. A couple of stresses, which is probably where I got sick. Probably one of the kids at my daughter's daycare or something like that. Every time I go in there, they're all covered in <laughs> snot, and you know they all they want to they want to give you a high five or something like that. And you're looking at them going, I don't know if I want to do that. Um, <laughs> um, this is probably something that. Then again, it you know it is that that. Uh, time of the year uh, for these sorts of things as well. Though it has been, as we were sort of briefly discussed before uh, we started recording, it's been really hot up here. Well, I use hot. Uh, uh, it's been hot for winter, let's put it that way. It's about been about 20, 26 degrees Celsius, uh, which is pretty unusual uh, for, for this time of year. Um, we normally, you know, don't, don't sort of crack Oh, 22, 23, maybe something like that, but 26. For our American listeners, that's uh, roughly 79 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which well, again- You just knew that or you didn't, didn't you? Hear? No, I quickly I quickly Googled that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, no, like reasonably warm. Uh, had a little sweat on today as I was, as I was doing things. So, uh, which is just a bit weird for this time of year. So I don't know if that bodes well for- the coming summer and I'm kind of a little bit scared of how hot you know this this coming summer might be considering what we've seen in other parts of the world especially if you're listening from the northern hemisphere I know things are particularly uh warm especially now um in your summer there's a lot of heat waves and things going on that we've heard about and so I'm a little bit scared I guess of of having the same sort of thing but that's yet to be seen. So let's try not to worry about things that we have no control over and that may or may not happen. But if anything, if this couple of days has been a taste, yeah, <laughs> the air conditioning might be running quite a lot over this coming summer. But, uh, oh, very good. Speaking of using lots of electricity, the Goldburn residents have recently invested in community owned solar. In the little town of Bannister, just north of Goulburn, residents are embracing renewable energy in a big way. Now, I'm going to apologize because I actually don't know how to pronounce this lady's name. I think it's Dimity. Uh, Dimity Taylor, a local resident, is not only living near a wind farm, but is also investing in a community-owned solar farm. Alongside... 300 other Goldburn residents, she is purchasing shares in a nearly $5 million solar solar farm project, which is being built by the Community Energy for Goldburn uh, on the outskirts of town. The initiative allows residents to buy individual solar panels for $400 each, with some contributing up to $100,000. I love this because the initial or the smallest investment required is only $400, which is very, very uh, approachable um, for everyone, you know? 
The solar farm is expected to be one of the first of its kind, uh, and it does come with battery storage system to store the energy that's pro being produced. The generated electricity is going to be sold to the local grid, and the investors can anticipate an annual return on their investment of approximately 5%. So not great, not terrible uh, in terms of investment performance. Community energy projects on the rise across Australia, and Bannister is no exception. With about 145 similar groups operating throughout the country, these community-owned endeavours empower residents to actively participate in the development of the renewable energy projects. These initiatives also present an alternative to relying on major foreign energy corporations. In the case of the Goldburn Solar Farm, it is structured as a cooperative, ensuring that each investor has an equal say in decision-making process. While the community-owned solar farm project has garnered favourable responses from the local residents, the broader adoption of renewable energy in Goldburn hasn't been without its challenges. The presence of a, B a British energy giant, BP, planning to establish a large-scale solar farm in the region has raised concerns among local farmers. Nevertheless, proponents of the community engagement believe that the model followed by community energy for Goldburn could potentially set a precedent for other renewable energy ventures in the low, in rural areas. Dimity Taylor is full of praise for the comprehensive and inclusive community consultation led by Community Energy for Goldburn. This approach has played a pivotal role in minimizing opposition to the solar farm project. As we spoke a few weeks ago, part of the biggest issue with some of these projects is that the community uh, opposition and the consultation has really let down the at, the at the initial planning stage and it really holds these things up. Yep. By actively engaging with residents and addressing their concerns, the organization has succeeded in garnering widespread, widespread community support for the initiative. Switching gears to a different region... In the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, a community solar farm situated in Majura was built in 2021. With over 5,000 solar panels spanning an area equivalent to nearly eight football fields, this solar farm is the result of collective efforts as well. Local community group 100% Renewable Canberra has been instrumental in making this project a reality. The organization has engaged in a cooperative effort with solar developers to establish the Majura Solar Farm, a shining example of the community's commitment to sustainable energy. The solar farm has the capacity to generate 2.5 megawatts of electricity, contributing substantially to the region's renewable energy goals. Community involvement has been the cornerstone of this project's overall success. With over 900 members of the public have invested a total of 2.3 million to make this solar farm a possibility. This level of community participation showcases the growing enthusiasm for renewable energy solutions and the desire to actively participate in shaping the energy landscape. All in all, Bannister and Majura, both characteristic of the growing trend of community-led renewable energy initiatives. Through cooperative efforts and active community involvement, these projects are setting a precedent for how local residents can actively contribute to the transition to sustainable energy sources. And I'm sure, like I love to say, 
watch this space because I think this is the sort of program that we're likely to see much more of in the future. Well, and I think there's something to be said about decentralizing the energy group. As we've spoken about over the last couple of weeks, we've had this green energy trend emerging um, where the the big energy giants, you know, our, our the BPs, the Shells, the Chevrons, all those guys – don't necessarily have to have as big of an impact in the future as as uh, these smaller con- community-run programs can really make a big difference, especially f- from a domestic point of view. When we're mm. talking, you know, domestic levels of um, of energy, your residential houses they don't really use that much, really, in the grand scheme of things, uh, when considered. Uh, against in the industry and industrial levels, so I think it's it's cool that that there's these sorts of programs that are not only being talked about and planned, that they're actually happening uh, across yep. across the nation. So I think it would be very cool to have each town have its own little power station that's community owned and community run and managed and things like that. Yeah, I look, I I love this idea. Um... It's going to be interesting to see how it how it actually turns out. I think your comment about uh, seeing it realised rather than just being on on paper is is an extremely important part of it. You know, I've had uh, who would have thought I've had uh, arguments with people over the years yeah. <laughs> about energy production and the climate and everything, and I. Am a, a firm disbeliever in governments and bureaucrats doing anything useful. They have no. they haven't for seventy years. <laughs> I keep saying it has to come from individuals, and this to me is that low level individual style of project that I think is actually going to do something serious. Yeah, look, yeah, putting aside all the arguments about you know Australia and how much it contributes and blah blah blah, it is an example of something uh, tangible. So, look, I, I really was very heartened to uh, to read this. Uh, I think it's interesting what you said too, that there's, uh, there's several of these projects around the place. Are they – did you know if it was the one in Canberra that you, uh, you stated? Was that a um, – Operating as a cooperative, because I thought I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think the structure of the Bannister one being a cooperative is what really sets it apart from other uh, community-owned. That's what um, I wondered. Yeah, because because this is structured, I think that's what makes it uh, structured as a cooperative makes it a little bit unique. Also, the fact that it also has the battery storage system and and everything like that. It's kind of like a one stop shop. How they yeah. how they've organised it all. There are other ones uh, like the one I described that I, I don't believe are cooperatives and or they don't have uh, the 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 battery storage on site and stuff like that so i think this one's kind of a bit unique in 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 all of the all of the different facets that it contains yeah i'll be keen to see how that uh that works cuz a cooperative owned model is is something that yeah often touted by the by socialist leaning people and i point out that we can already do it under the capitalist system i mean we're not allowed to do it the other way around but capitalism 
does allow for socialist experiments like this. And I think that's, uh, that's going to be interesting to, to keep an eye on. There's also one of, one of our members in the r slash Australian subreddit, uh, username Dane, who lives on a lane, had made a point uh, in this, this subject saying agrovoltaics could really transform Australia. We need shade and lots of dense undergrowth, and if that's uh, food and we get energy for free, then we're sorted. And I thought that's because solar solar farms take up a lot of land, you know, which that's that's that the amount of area they take is not really one of their strong points. However, this move towards utilizing those um, panels to create uh, what what like a microclimate essentially, it's a big big microclimate, but compared to uh, a large area, it's it's technically still a microclimate, and utilizing uh, that to create different tr- crops, um, yeah, maybe raise different sorts of animals. Although I, uh, the farm that I'd mentioned coming back from Albury, they just uh, have sheep grazing on there to keep the the grass down. But I thought that was a good point that it does also open up uh, a, a dual use. I don't know a lot about agri-volt- agrivoltaics. It's a phrase that I've, I've heard, but I like the dual-purpose-sounding nature of it. It's, it's a big subject. It may be something we go into another time because there is a lot of interest in agrivoltaics. Uh, there's a lot of research going into it at the moment in places like the Netherlands. Um, and I think in America as well. Um, it's definitely one of these emerging, a hybridization of different technologies. Nothing, again, nothing is really specifically new, but we're kind of combining a bunch of different things to see, a little bit of experimentation to see see uh, what the outcomes are like. And that's it's something I think could work well in Australia in specific environments and stuff like that. But it, again, it's one of those ones that I think is worth potentially looking at, but that's a whole thing that um, we probably really don't have time to get into today. But no, we may, no, we sure. may, yeah. Look, we may, we may do that uh, in in the future or something like that. So, look, I think it'll be one of those things as it as it grows in popularity. We'll we'll no doubt have a story coming up specifically addressing it, and we can use that as a a launch point in the the future to uh, to discuss it. We've actually got a, a battery, a, a big battery being planned for down um, our way. About it's going to be about thirty k's up the road um, as one of those sort of localized um, uh, storage things for down here on the the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, I believe it's pretty much been given the go-ahead. I haven't seen signs of it being built yet, and I'm I'm hoping it's not going to get mired in bureaucracy. Uh, but it does. It's interesting to me how that you do are you are going to have that decentralised um, management of energy, and I know when people who know what they're talking about start talking about the grids. It, becomes a very complicated matter. I don't even pretend to understand it. But I do get that if you can essentially create energy sinks in the form of, of batteries, then people 
building solar farms and putting solar on their rooftop, that curve is smoothed out and uh, it localizes the use while still providing a regulated output to the rest of the national grid. Mm. Which again, I think I think that's better for everyone in a situation like that as well, because you are decentralizing it. If there's a problem somewhere, if there's a if there's a blackout or something like that, you know, having it having your eggs in one basket doesn't matter really what it is. It's never really a good idea. Decentralizing these things and diversifying the grid network uh, and and the grid storage, I think, is a great idea. And I think everyone will probably agree um, that it's a great, great way to do it. I don't necessarily think that it has to be set up as a collective or something like that. It is a bit cool that it is in that because it is a bit unique um, and it does. And again, like I said, I like that there is the the barrier for entry is very low. $400 each isn't a lot of money. Um, I think a lot of people can probably rustle up, you know, that sort of that sort of money. but the thing I think I like about this more is that it gives people um, – it sort of ties people to the community and the way that – like community mm. infrastructure and stuff like that in a way that they always don't really have. Uh, and they don't really think about this sort of stuff as well. Um, and I, I think that's just an overall positive thing. When you're invested in your community because you don't – the other thing is you don't have to be a household owner to, to necessarily invest in a, something like this. So, mm. even if you are a rental or something like that, you yep. can kind of contribute. Because, you know, you know, we've spoken before many times now about – I've got solar on my roof and da 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 um, and that's all well and good but I'm only providing it really to myself and then obviously to the wider grid but if you're renting or something you don't really have the 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 capacity to, to do that um, you know and even if you did I don't think you really want to pay to put solar panels on someone else's roof that you don't control so right. th- this is kind of a, a, a cool way that you can involve the a, a much larger group of the community um and at the end of the day it's just more people caring about their community and the things that are involved in it i think is overall a, a positive thing i don't see how this could be an issue um and does, yeah yep it does it and, does increase that and when you were it's it's funny when you you said that about the uh the the, the soul on going out i thought yeah i and look, maybe this is just funny or parochial, but I thought the idea of the excess power that we produce that ends up going to the grid, that it may go to a localised battery and get used first by the community. I know it's all just electricity. However, uh, you know, some of these some of these things, uh, there's, there's also a feeling attached attached to it. And uh, I sort of think, oh, it'd be pretty neat that it actually just sort of we, we're keeping our energy production as local as as possible, so that those around us get uh, first dibs on it. Exactly. And what's yeah. not what's I, like? I, I look at it and go, that's such a. Um, such an empowering thing for a small local community. You know, it's easy for big cities to build big power plants and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But I think, especially in more rural communities, where people are more likely to invest. It's Again, not to say that big city people don't care. It's not what I'm saying. What I mean is, like, if you live in a smaller, more regional... (laughs) 
Yeah, no, if you live in a smaller, more regional area, you probably have a bit more investment in your local community anyway, like emotionally speaking, just because uh, there's less people, there's more, there's more, um, anything that goes wrong kind of affects you uh, yeah. in some way or someone that you know. Uh, and, and things like this really help ingrain people in that community. And again, like I said, it's open to everyone. The barrier of entry is really, really low. And just that, that feeling of, you know, at the end of the day, we, we know that, burning coal burning fossil fuels is not good for for not just not just not for the planet but it's not good if you live in an area around that as well it can harm the community literally there's health problems and things like that as well so knowing that your community is running from a sustainable uh, energy source that you're now getting paid for as well um, yep. is is a cool thing. Like, I, I'd like to see more of this sort of stuff happen and, and decentralize a bit more and give, give the power back to some of these smaller, more rural communities um, that have kind of largely been forgotten by, by the bureaucrats in Canberra um, and... Just, just have that community feeling with some of these smaller places. But again, I do think there's a bit of, um, there's definitely a bit of leeway for things like um, agrivoltaics and all sorts of stuff. Not solar roads. That's a stupid bloody idea. But there's things like oh. that that we could do, you know, where we could start getting a bit more creative with how they do that. And it doesn't have to be on a really large scale. I think that's what I really like about this as well. Yeah. It can be a it can be a small scale thing in your local community. Uh, doesn't have to get crazy huge or anything like that. It can just be, you know, a, a, a couple of the one in what do we say? Majura is two point five megawatts, which really, on the grand scheme of how much energy that is, it's not a huge amount. No. Um, but again, it only costs two point three million dollars, which in again, in terms of infrastructure, isn't a lot of money. Yeah. So. Um, I'd like to see more of the stuff, and I hope we do in the future. Yeah, and you can also uh, take that model from place to place. So with us actually, with them starting to produce it and ironing out a few bugs, you would get to the the point where you can just say, okay, put in this many, you get this much interest from this many people, put in this many panels, this much um, battery. Here's the manufacturers who've done it before. Do you want package A, B, or C for your c community? And it makes it easier to just uh, yeah do that cookie cutter model, and yeah multiply it, le leverage what we learn. No, you're exactly right. Yeah, no, you're exactly right because you, and you can kind of customize it to each place as it goes and everything like that as well. You know, some people might. It may not work to have cattle grazing between it or something like that, or maybe you do, and now you've got a small local farm that's producing <clears throat> lamb, which is, you know, the, the local butcher does it. and You know what I mean? It, this can kind of snowball into a, a, a much bigger community thing, and I think exactly. it, it, it's good to see this sort of thinking starting and... Um, you know, th these plans aren't just on paper. These are real things. They're actually happening and everything like that. So, now nah, this gives me the warm fuzzies. It warms yep. my uh, cold, dead heart, as I say. Um, <laughs> save, and, I mean, save you. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, small towns doing big things, it's time for our Two Ticks Town Talk. I've been a Okay, we go down to New South Wales to 
or down for you, up for me, to New South Wales, to the lovely town of Eden. Uh, it's got a population uh, 3,151. It's a coastal town on the south coast region of New South Wales. Uh, it's 478k south of Sydney. That's 297 miles. And it's the most southerly town in New South Wales, located between Nullica Bay to the south and Kalikala, or Kalakala, I don't know the pronunciation of that, but I'm going to go with Kalakala Bay, the northern reach of Twofold Bay, a deep natural harbour, so keep that in mind for what's coming up, and uh, built on undulating land adjacent to the third, the, adjacent to the third deepest natural harbour, being Twofold Bay, in the Southern Hemisphere and Snug Cove on its western boundary. Snug Cove. Snug Cove, yes, which (laughs) (laughs) sounds like the the huge area of water was a a nice place to to be. So, yeah, it's a funny name. (laughs) Now, what caught my interest about this was its tie-in with whaling in Australia. Um, we'll, uh, whaling in Australia is possibly a topic that we might do a deeper dive on in the, the future, um, but we'll, we'll de- delve into a little bit of its uh, a brief overview in, in this give a little bit more info on it before we get into that whaling side that's that's relevant. Uh, local Aboriginal people who lived in the region prior to the arrival of Europeans were the, the Thawa people of the Yuan Nation. Now, whaling ships had been operating in Australia uh, around 17, and in that area in 1791. And that particular area, George Bass uh, first took shelter in Twofold Bay on the return leg of a voyage to Van Diemen's Land, now called Tasmania, in February 1798. Uh, noted that the bay on the southward, noting the bay on the southward leg of his uh, same voyage in December 1797, and then later in September of that uh, year, Matthew Flinders surveyed the bay for the first time. Uh, they also made contact then with the local uh, Thawa Aboriginal people on that occasion. Whaling in Australia began around that time, 1791, and five of the 11... Oh. Sh- <laughs> Sorry, didn't waste any time, did they? No, well, well I, did, I, I wait for this next sentence on how they didn't waste any time. In 1791... Uh, it began when five of the 11 ships in the third fleet landed their passengers and freight at Sydney Clove and immediately left Port jo- Jackson and buggered off to do some whaling oh and my seal goodness. hunting. So it was, I suppose, people, uh, that was a source of, uh, a, a very lucrative source of, of oil. Um, and oil, you know, the the whale oil, uh, particularly you know, sperm whale. Um, yeah, there's also the humpbacks, bowheads, right whales as well. 
the oil that you could get out of them, which was uh, used for you know, lighting and heating and until fossil fuels came along and, and saved the whales. Um, That's it, a it, weird but, sentence. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's true. If it, if it wasn't yeah. for fossil fuels, we probably wouldn't have any whales left. Um, but until then, it was, it was a valuable commodity. So you're right. They didn't. They didn't waste any time whatsoever. And it was one of those uh, things that became. It became quite obvious that uh, Australia and New Zealand, the area around it, was a very rich hunting ground. Now there was two types of um, ways that they did the whaling. One was you know, going out in the the open seas, and the other one was. Um, essentially being land-based and using a, a big, deep natural harbour like you had in, uh, in Eden. So you've got... Uh, uh, where are we? So whaling went on to become a major maritime industry in Australia, provided work for hundreds of ships, like hundreds of ships, thousands of men, and uh, contributing export products were worth Four point two million pounds by eighteen fifty. Now, looking at that, I should have done a trans a translation and inflation adjusted for what it is now. But let's just uh, do a rough back of the uh, envelope count. Yep, that's a shirtload. Um, <laughs> so the first shore whaling station on the Australian mainland was established by Captain Thomas Rain, and that was at Twofold Bay near near Eden. Um, well, it's where Eden's located. So bay whaling involved the capture of right whales that were in sheltered bays around the coasts of Australia and New Zealand. So during winter months, they'd come in, they'd breed. So at that time, they were uh, vulnerable to, to capture. Uh, it was good for the new colonies because you didn't need a whole lot of financial resources. You just had to be able to you know, get some basic ships, take off when it was the right thing, and you could have a shore-based whaling station with a um, few boats, uh, don't know what tripods are, and wooden casts to, to store the oil. Uh, people involved with that... That's the word I was looking for. The people involved with that didn't receive set wages, but like pelagic whalers, and pelagic means any water that is neither close to the bottom or near the shore, they were paid a share of the value of the catch, known as a, a lay. So that was, it was interesting how that was uh, an industry that they knew. They came down to us, came down to Australia, realised that it was something that uh, the colony could use to not only support itself but start bringing in uh, money and being able to do it. It's almost like a startup doing it some from somewhere like uh, like Eden. So I thought that was one of the things that really caught my interest uh, about it. Yeah, and I was a bit surprised, like like you, DK. I didn't realize it was so quick and so off the mark. Yeah, now that you've explained that, it does make sense that they were like, because these guys, a lot of these sailors and that, have probably done it in the past at some point anyway. And they probably kind of knew what they were doing. Also, I would imagine that the whales possibly 
you know, didn't necessarily react uh, in, in, you know, there might have been a bit more, um, uh, not friendly, but maybe a bit more um, lethargic to the whalers coming coming to attack them just because they simply hadn't encountered anything like that before um, compared to, say, the whales in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, which by that point, you know, had been severely decimated their populations and things like that. Um, yeah, well, it's beautifully set up for me to tell you the story, <laughs> the story of the orcas. Oh, no. oh, no. <laughs> These poor whales. Oh, yeah, poor whales is right. Now, the uh, the local Aboriginal people, uh, the Thawa people from the UN Nature Nation, they were employed in the whaling industry. Yeah, they were involved with the, the, the boats and everything around there, so they, they were intimately involved with that. Um, uh, where are we? Uh, excuse me, I just lost my, my place. This is the part that really sort of, um, really sort of took my, my notice. Uh, when the right whales would cut, would, would come in, there'd also be killer whales, um, chasing them but killer whales were considered a a pest and an annoyance and basically a a nuisance and frequently killer whales which i didn't realize they're a type of a type of dolphin according to what i yeah yeah. um yeah the bastard dolphin of the sea probably uh, <laughs> uh they would they were just a, a a pest to the the whalers and so they would sort of traditionally in whaling things yeah they they they'd harpoon them you know treat them treat them poorly but the local aboriginal people they had had a long relationship with the um the killer whales in the the area before the the white folk came to twofold bay the killer whales uh hunted a, a porpoise like cretacean called the grampus often they ran them ashore where uh the aborigines would feed on them and they said they felt that they were strengthened in the belief that the the killers were sacred because they provided food for the people there so they had a relationship with the killer whales, um, before the you know, before white man came over there. So what happened is they were involved in this industry. When they were on the, the ship, they said, "No, no way at all are we going to kill start killing these killer whales. They're they're you know, they're sacred to us. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to do that." But what they ended up establishing, they through and I don't I couldn't find out how they did this but they ended up training the killer whales to trap the right whales in the bay so that they could be more easily killed by the whalers and then the whalers would reward the killer whales by giving them choice cuts of meat from the whales that they, from the right whales that they had killed so they ended up having this symbiotic relationship where the killer whales worked in conjunction with the whalers for uh, a good feed from these white whales, uh, right whales. 
I thought that was really wow. <laughs> a really interesting little twist. Wow. I think I've yeah. heard this before, actually. Is there yeah. more to this story? I don't wanna I don't wanna jump in. No, I couldn't find more to that because I, I went to a couple of other things. Now who knows, maybe in the other whaling because when I read this, there was a little tinkle tickle in the back of my head as well, thinking, Oh, this sounds familiar. But I couldn't find um I couldn't find more in the time that I applied to it. I'm trying uh, to think Something and and look, this may be like a movie or something. I'm not sure, so, but it's just something I remember from from when I was younger. Some something like uh, the the whales, uh, the killer whales that would help them would be would wanted to have the. Um, I think it was the tongue of the mm. the right whales or something like that and they would have to give them like first choice right as payment for, for helping which makes sense um and then you know one day a group of them didn't and then the killer whales wouldn't help them anymore and it became uh like you know it made their their lives significantly more difficult i don't know if that's true or not <laughs> it may be something like i said it may have just been like a story or something like that but i'm sure i've heard about this cooperation between man and and beast uh, in the past, which is kind of cool in a way, but it's also kind of like mm. horrific. <laughs> well, look, it is, but I liked how there I liked how there was the the melding of, of a very traditional mm. uh, relationship between the the Thawa people and the killer whales, and how it incorporated so neatly into the uh, the next evolution of the. Um, that that area. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's it's cool, but at the same time, we're still killing whales. So, well, <laughs> it's, you know. Well, look, that's that's true. What I what I saw looking through things is there's different things about when Australia stopped it and a whole lot of other things. Which, as as I said, we might end up doing a um, a, a deeper dive. But yes, so that is. Why I chose Eden. That's what caught my interest: the whaling in Australia and the story of the the orcas. Have you been to Eden before? I have. I had oh, have okay. been to to Eden um, uh, when we sometimes when we've gone up to to Sydney, we think, oh, let's take a a, a bit of a um, more scenic route. Yeah, more scenic route up the up the coast. You'd never do it in school holidays or something like that. Oh yeah, it's I can imagine. A, oh, pain in the neck. But you know, when yeah. we've got a got a bit of time up our our sleeve, um, you know, we've stopped at Eden. Haven't stayed there, but you know, had a had a bit of a feed there. Had a bit of a stop and a a walk around when we had a leisurely drive. Um, yeah, not a bad part of the the world. And I knew there was I knew there was whaling there, but. Uh, Sorry, had been whaling there because you know there's a few things in the the town that um, give you some information on that, but didn't know those details. So yeah, yeah, yeah no, cool, it's an interesting spot. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, very cool. Uh, let's get on to some more cheerful things now. The <laughs> uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has asked for a public holiday if the Matildas win the world. Cup. I like this idea. <laughs> um, 
So Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has come forward to defend the push, his push, I should say, for a public holiday to support the Matildas. Who the Matildas, you say? The Matildas are the national women's soccer team. Uh, This move comes ahead of the team's... uh, It did come ahead of the team's quarterfinal match, which was played on Saturday night. Yes, Saturday night. Uh, This last Saturday, uh, which they won. So... Uh, they they played against France and they won in a penalty shootout. Uh, it was very very intense that game. It was fantastic actually. Uh, the proposal suggests that the public holiday be declared if the Matildas win the women's the FIFA Women's World Cup final. The Prime Minister believes that the Matildas have captured the hearts of Australians and have been performing exceptionally well in the tournament. He argues that granting the public holiday would enable everyone to rally behind the team and celebrate their achievements. But this proposal has garnered a lot of mixed reactions. Some individuals see it as a positive way to boost national pride and acknowledge the accomplishments of the Matildas. Others, however, have raised concerns about the economic impact of a public holiday and the potential disruptions to businesses and services. One of those vocal opponents is head of the opposition, Peter Dutton. Hmm. He has rejected the proposed public holiday if the Matildas win the World Cup, as and he has said it is a stunt and an ego trip from the Prime Minister. The Shadow Sports Minister, Anne uh, Rustin, she has complained that the holiday would cost the economy $2 billion and proposed instead that if elected, the coalition would give $250 million in grants to community sports infrastructure. I don't know why she's talking about elections because there aren't any on right now. (laughs) It must be boring being a member of the opposition. Uh, Dutton and Rustin said in a joint statement that the one-off public holiday comes as a potential cost to the economy of $2 billion, not to mention sidelining the recent triumphs of other female teams in the Netball World Cup and in the ashes. It is a stunt which will have no legacy impact. The Prime Minister has tried to make the Matildas' success all about him. Bold words from the opposition. Albanese has acknowledged the concerns but emphasised the importance of recognising the Matildas' achievements and providing a platform for all Australians to show their support. He believes that such a move would be well worth the benefits it brings in terms of national unity and showcasing women's sports. As the Matildas continue to make their mark on the international stage, the push for a public holiday serves as a reflection of the growing enthusiasm and support for women's sports in Australia. The decision to implement the public holiday ultimately uh, has nothing to do with with the Prime Minister or the opposition. It lies in the hands of the state premiers and the territory chief ministers. But the the controversy sparked by this proposal underscores the broader conversation about recognition and support for female athletes. What Mm. do you reckon, Ardit? Would another public holiday in the year... We don't have a lot of public holidays in Queensland compared to some of the other states, so don't a you? freebie. No, we, we, we're one of the states that uh, we don't get as many. I think Canberra has the most. Um, really? Canberra? <laughs> yeah. What a surprise, what the a ACT. Surprise, yeah. uh, um, <laughs> but 
yeah, I don't know. I think it's cool. I think it's a big deal that the Matildas uh, are this far through the World Cup. The you know the the women's World Cup. Uh, the Socceroos can't say that they've they're into to the semifinals of the World Cup. No. Uh, no. So we are hosting. Uh, we are jointly hosting the FIFA World Cup between Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so that kind of plays into it as well. Um, yeah. And honestly, I personally can say I've never really cared too much about uh, women's soccer. I don't really care about soccer. It's not specific to the women. Uh, but I have been watching this World Cup. I have been watching the Matildas. The next game was against uh, England. It's being played tonight and I will mm. be watching and I hope they win. Uh, but how do you think, what, do you think this deserves a, a public holiday? Well, look, this conversation may be moot after tonight. After tonight, let's hope it's not. Let's uh, hope they go on. Look, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a big follower of it as uh, either. Um, but you know, good, good luck to them. I've got a few mixed uh feelings about this i think essentially in in principle and much as i despise the man i think the message that dutton and um shadow minister are putting out is pretty much correct i think albanese is jumping out in front of a parade i think he is making it about him and I think there are a lot of Australian small businesses that would just not appreciate the financial hit of Albo doing a faux hawky. Um, and, and by that, I mean for people who don't understand that, um, back in 80, hmm, mid-80s or something when... Uh, Australia won the America Cup and, and Hawk was, I think it might have been 87, something like that, uh, and, and Hawk was famous for being excited about it, wearing the, uh, the the jacket and the supporting thing. I mean, he was mad about sports, so I thought it was quite genuine. Uh, and there's some line, you know, any, any boss who doesn't give his workers a day off today is a bum. And he had a good laugh about that. It was, yeah, it was. It was a. It's a clip that I can still sort of see in my my head. So, yeah, you know, I tend to. I, I tend to feel that you know, Albo's um, doing a bit of a, a callback to that. So, in those, from that point of view, I tend to agree with um, Dutton's criticisms. However, I think it's a, a pretty good political play. He gets the attention for proposing it. If the Matildas lose, he doesn't have to deliver on it. If they win and it won't actually get through, he only has to point at the LNP uh, for that as, they'll be, uh, as they are objecting to it. So he's got the scapegoats there. He doesn't have to worry uh, about anything more other than saying, oh, this is a great idea. As you read out, this is down to the, the states as well. and. Yeah, I think for him to have his position as if he's going to be able to say something about it and for Dutton to have his position as if he's got some say in it not happening, a yeah, bit of a hubris on uh, on both, both sides for them. Um, that's how I tend to feel about it. Look, po- posit- positive, on, the positive, on the positive side, 
I'd like to see them get through. I think, yeah, it gets a bit exciting. Uh, I'm not a big per- sports person, as I said, but it's really attracted like a very high attention and the fact that um, Australia and New Zealand are hosting it. It's nice to see some success. You know, I had I had that same sense of, um, yeah, I, I suppose it was pride, uh, pride or pleasure with the Sydney Olympics. I liked how that worked so well, how they pulled it off. You know, it was, we actually went up and saw a few events there. Um, it's good to see things work out and, you know, to me it's a bit, I suppose it's a bit more on the wholesome and positive side if you want to be a little bit, um, a little bit that way about it. Yeah, I think, you know, again, I'm not a big soccer person really, um, but I know Football Australia has been really trying to push push soccer in Australia. Uh, I'm more of an NRL kind of guy in rugby union. Um, but the, the fact Albanese has been really behind this flight since the beginning like he's really pushed this so i don't i don't necessarily agree that it's all about him though it is smart politics i won't deny that Mm. um uh he did like he's been doing other things as well like he did have um there was a series of tweets between him uh and emmanuel macron the 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 president of france before the game on saturday where uh, obviously, the Matildas versus the French team, uh, and he, he, they had a bit of a jest. Said that if um, if the Matildas win, then you've got to support Australia when we go into the semi-finals. And of course, if France wins, then we'll I'll support France and things like that. So there has been a bit of banter back and forth and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, the the fact that honestly, the fact that Australia. Uh, is in the is tonight is playing in the semi-finals of 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 a FIFA World Cup. Just mm. blows my mind, quite frankly. <laughs> um, we've never done that well because, again, you know, like I said, soccer's not huge in Australia. Um, you know, we we've really focused on other sports, and you know, not not to to poo-poo So I remember th- this was discussed within. Um I think it might have been in our our, our slash Australian sub. And whilst there weren't any figures quoted, someone made that comment about the the popularity of uh, soccer in Australia and were very much slapped on the wrist talking about just how popular it has become in Australia. And it sounds like whilst, from our perception, it's not as high profile as... um, you know, NRL, AFL and that, it's apparently got a very, very wide participation and following. Um, it's not yet at that level, but numbers-wise, it's uh, it's a very popular sport. So sorry to jump in, but you, yeah, you, no, said, you yeah. said that and I thought, ah, oh, when someone corrected I thought, oh, okay, I heard their argument and I thought, oh, that's a reasonable comment. Yeah, I mean, I say that, but my son plays soccer and all his friends play soccer and stuff like that. So it is it is still pretty big and we've got the A-League and all that kind of stuff. So mm. um, just in my mind, because I'm not much of a follower of it, in my mind, I'm like, 
some of the popular. Also, it should be said, like, not very many of my friends really follow soccer. Um, yeah. The Socceroos, you know, they did play really well at the, the World Cup last year, the, the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Uh, I think they came 11th or something like that. So, and I think that's the best we've ever done. So, for the, for the you know, for the women's team, the Matildas, to, to be playing, they're in the top four at this point, right? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Even if they yeah. lose against England, um, <laughs> Spain, and Sweden were the other semi-final match, and Spain beat Sweden. Oh. So if we lose tonight, we play Sweden for who's going to be third or fourth. If we win tonight, we go into the finals. I think oh, this is, God. you know, especially for women's sport, it's something that we've really been pushing over the last few years. I, I actually can't think of an example of an, a huge international sport that is apparently quite popular in Australia. Um on, on the world stage, all that stuff. It's being played in Australia, which is also as well. You know, it's very rare that moments like this genuinely come up and happen. So uh, I have no problem that, you know, Albanese is trying to score a, a couple of political points from us, if that's what it is. Um, at the end of the day, like I said, it's actually up to the states and territories whether or not they, they want to have a public holiday for the event. Um, I've... I, like, I was a bit confused. I don't really know how this is going to work because you can't have it on the day because it's played on a Sunday. So that doesn't really work uh, this coming Sunday, um, like at eight o'clock at night. So that doesn't really work. Are they going to do it the Monday? But if we don't know, are people going to go to bed not knowing if they have to go to work? You know, that's a bit messy. It doesn't really make sense yeah. in my mind. Yeah. Um, but I think he's... I don't like. I don't know if he's genuine. Almost all the states and territories are run by Labor governments, so I'm sure he's got some goodwill there within the party that he could probably push it over the line if he really wanted to. How how logistically it would work, I don't know. Is it a political stunt? Very possibly. Um, but I think it, it is. It fair to say that he's doing a, a hawky. Maybe, maybe there's a callback to that. But also, he has been really vocal about that. He's actually, I think he's a pretty big sports guy. I know he doesn't look it, um, but I think he is a fairly big sports guy because he's always he's always at events and things like that. And I don't think it's like a politics thing. I think he genuinely, yeah, you know, okay, likes this stuff. I don't know. Um, but I'm excited. Tonight at 8 o'clock. Oh, okay, uh, okay. Australia, England. I'll be watching, screaming, probably at my TV. Um, oh. <laughs> so the Matildas, so the girls can hear me. Uh, yeah. Go the Matildas. Yeah. Hopefully they win. Is it, I think a one-off public holiday for them definitely has to be planned in advance because otherwise, yeah, it's a huge disruption to small business owners. It's a huge disruption for workers. How it's going to work, I don't know. Um I just like days off, so that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice, but, you know, whatever whatever happens, happens. Speaking of things that have happened, what's going on this week in Australian history? All right, this week in Australian history, we're covering the dates August 10th to August 16th. So, August 10th in 1853, a Jubilee Festival was held in Hobart to mark the cessation of convict transportation to the colony. 1885, the Broken Hill Proprietary Company 
uh, later to become the world's largest mining company, BHP, Billiton, is registered as a company in Victoria. So 1885, I don't think I would have picked wow. it that early. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that, yeah. No, that wow, I think is appropriate. Uh, 1914, recruitment recruiting begins for the first Australian Imperial Force. Uh, Australia had offered a force of 20,000 troops. Uh, 19... Oh, if this harkens back to what we were talking about with Eden. 1920, the Prince's Highway is opened, connecting Sydney and Adelaide via Melbourne. S- that highway follows the coastline for most of oh, that, that length. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah so the coast road. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an indirect and lengthy route, but it is it is scenic. Uh, August eleventh, not uh, speaking speaking of Hawking, August eleventh, nineteen eighty nine, a pilot strike cripples domestic air travel in uh, Australia. So that was one of the most expensive and dramatic um, industrial disputes in Australia's history. Uh, the Australian Federation of Air Pilots uh, coordinated it after basically their, their pilots had had the, the wages suppressed. It was looking for a, a pay raise of 29.5%. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was a, that was a big one. Um, it became, the uh, dispute became, began impacting the public 18th of August um, 1989, because the pilots said we're just going to be working nine to five. Uh, the strike was never actually formally uh, resolved because there was a mass resignation of pilots, uh, their award was cancelled, and there was derecognition of their, their union. I mean, the, oh, the, wow. Yeah, the union's still around, but uh, they basically, they basically said, look, you're no longer, um, we're no longer recognising you as a, um, a valid union for this. So there was, there was a whole lot of industrial relations shenanigans and high-level stuff going back and forth. Um, so, yeah, look, you, you're probably, you're not old enough to remember it, but, yeah. No, was- but I, I vaguely remember there being, like, wasn't didn't the RAF get involved and they were yeah, flying yep. some people around and stuff yep. like that? Yep. Um, I don't yeah, know how was, much of that happened, but well, there was, there was a whole lot of that. They they really um, uh, they really pulled out all stops and yeah, and then which uh, is wild. Can you imagine that today? Yeah. The RAF just decides to start. Um, you know, uh, f- replace your Qantas flight yeah. with 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 a with a raft plane. That would be yeah, absolutely wild. I think I remember uh, uh, the reason I bring this up is because I'm pretty sure my one of my family. I think it was one of my uncles or something like that. Uh, flew flew on one of the raft planes at the time, um, wow. and it was you know like very disruptive and all that kind of stuff. And I remember going to an air show when I was younger, and there was a C one thirty Hercules and stuff, and he was like, "Oh, I've flown on one of these because." Of this, you know, and and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very interesting. August twelfth, eighteen twenty nine. Helen Dance, wife of the captain of the ship Sulphur, cut down a tree to mark the day of founding of the town in Perth, Western Australia. Of of Perth in Western Australia, which is an interesting way to do it to cut down a, a 
a tree rather than sort of yeah. plant, plant one. <laughs> yeah, normally, yeah, today we plant a tree or yeah. maybe like, you know, get a photo with you putting a shovel into the ground or yeah. something like that. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, I, 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 I suppose you would, you would argue that it's uh, cut down a tree and that's when we're starting to, to clear the land and yeah. uh, harvest the natural resources. But, yeah, in t- by today's... Um, in today's paradigm, it seemed an it seemed an odd way to memorialise it. Uh, Nineteen hundred in August twelfth, Frederick Lane wins the men's two hundred metre freestyle at the nineteen hundred Summer Olympics. Nineteen sixteen, over the preceding four days, Martin O'Mara repeatedly went out and brought in wounded Mara or O'Mara, it might be. Uh, went out and brought in wounded officers and men from no man's land under intense artillery and machine gun fire during the Battle of Pozier. For his gallantry, he was awarded the Victoria Cross. I still read those things and I think, God, I don't know if I would have that in me, running out into it, running out into that and bringing people back and then saying, all right, I'm off again. Yeah, to, to do it once. Yep. You know, yeah, I think I think a lot of people might have that in them, you know, but to continue over several days oh. to continue to do it, um, absolute. Honestly, how he walked around with the size of his balls, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Machine gun bullets might have just been bouncing off that. <laughs> <laughs> that interesting image. Nineteen eighteen, uh. King George the Fifth. Knights John Monash on the battlefield, uh, the first British commander to be knighted in that way for 200 years. And Monash was considered one of the best Allied generals of the First World War and the most famous commander in Australian history. Um, yep. Yeah, it's a well known. We've got Monash Freeway down here. Yeah, Monash yep. is a name that pops up all over Australia. Yeah, particularly in Melbourne because that's where yeah. he was born and that. So. Yeah, yeah. August 13th, uh, 1940, three members of the Australian Cabinet, Air Minister James Fairbairn, Information Minister Sir Henry Gillette and Army Minister Brigadier Geoffrey Street were killed along with the Chief of General Staff of the Australian Army, General Sir Brudenell White, in the Canberra Air Disaster. Basically, it was a um, a, a plane crash. Um, yeah, the plane crash decimated yeah. the high command of Australia. Yeah, about to be at war. Well, we were sorry, yes. we were at war, uh, but but obviously in Europe at the time. Yep. Um, but yep, it, it's definitely this is one of those situations I think that a lot of people don't specifically know about. But it's it's one of those weird things in history where you're like, if this didn't happen, I think the defense of australia and the war in the pacific i think it would have been fought in a bit of a different way um Mm. and oh look i I think the outcome of the war and everything like that probably would have been the same but you know losing such senior staff uh when you're in a in a situation like this it has a huge domino effect obviously and it's it is one of those ones that's kind of like if this didn't happen, would things have been different? How would have campaigns happened? You know, all those sorts of things. It's you, you never know, but it is one of these just weird things that happened in the middle of the war. 
Mm. So you're saying it's a it's a positive thing then that they they plunge to their death. No, I think it was <laughs> <laughs> absolutely terrible. Um, <laughs> stirring you up. <laughs> it's a very interest. It's a very interesting comment, though, to have that uh, that many people in charge taking out taken out. Definitely would have had an impact on the logistics and the um, strategies. Yeah. Now, like I said, it's one of those, you know, what if this didn't happen type type moments in history i guess where yeah it's just one of those things one of those freak accidents really yes yep oh god and speaking about people plunging their their death again on the same uh date but in 18 1989 uh 13 people die in a hot air balloon accident near alice springs in the northern territory um that's August- terrifying i know i know i saw it. Oh yeah, I, the the idea of that. Um, Oof. No, no. I don't. I yeah. Look, I've I've done a lot of flying, but hot air balloons. Nah, no thanks. <laughs> I don't know. Just some about it, but you know, it, it. You know what it is? I feel like it's something I could design, or like a child could design. You know, big yeah. balloon basket underneath. It just seems too simple. No thanks. I don't want to. F- <laughs> oh no. No, you could just uh, but, you know, say maybe you should take that uh, metal cap off the champagne cork before you open it. And someone's saying, <laughs> what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> August 14th, 1963, Yolongu people petitioned the Australian House of Representatives with a bark petition after the government sold part of the Arnhem Land Reserve on 13th of March to March to a bauxite mining company. 1984, the racehorse Fine Cotton is the centre of a substitution scam at Eagle Farm Racecourse, Brisbane, Queensland. Basically, they, they swap the horse around, and I, I'm trying to stretch my memory back, but there was someone, I think someone had noticed noticed in, in, in a, a photo or, or something that there was a there was a marking on the, the horse that was just a bit different. Um and then it all all unraveled. So So I, they so they dressed up another horse pretending yep. it was to be So they swapped the horses around sort of like Yeah. Yeah they swapped the, uh. the horses a, a, around and um as I said, my memory's a, a, a bit faded on it, but it was, you know, to essentially manipulate odds, you know, scare yep. money out of the the bookies, get um, get odds up for for the horse, so that you know when they basically they were controlling um, the performance of the horse by using multi, by using more than one horse. I don't know if they used. I don't know if there was. I think there's only just two involved, but I don't know that for sure. But uh, yeah, running a bit of a scam. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Yeah. August 15th, 1914, the first Australian Imperial Force was formed following Britain's declaration of war on Germany. Uh, 1980, not 85, 1945, VP Day is celebrated. That was Victory Over Japan Day or VJ yep. Day or Victory in the Pacific Day, which yep. is where we get the VP um, from so that was the day on which um, Imperial Japan surrendered in World War Two. 
essentially bringing the the, the war to an end. Uh, August 16, 1998, two Victoria police officers, Gary Silk and Rodney Miller, uh, murdered in Moorabbin, Victoria. And finally, August 16th, 1999, the Balti Bridge over the Yarra is opened in Melbourne, Victoria. Whilst I don't think it's the most, um, uh, it's certainly not, you wouldn't call it a, a colourful bridge, it is an attractive ribbon um, as, it, as it sort of spans that, uh, spans the, the place from the, the freeway over the, um, the docks and to the other side. It's very monolithic. Good. Yep. Very good. Very good choice of, of word. Monolithic is good. It's cool when they light it up with the lights. You know, they shine the lights of different colors yep. and stuff on it. And then it looks cool. Um, for, for our listeners that don't know what we're talking about, it's basically, uh, you know, a, a bridge spanning, but it has two. I guess they're they're sort of central, massive columns of concrete, like towers of concrete, mm. um, and that that's kind of its defining feature, I guess. The the bridge itself yep. is a bit boring, really. Yes. Um, it just kind of comes across, but then you've got these huge white, you know, concrete spires like monoliths just sticking out of the the Yarra River. It's I don't know. It's very bold. It's not. Yep. If I had to design a bridge, I don't know that I'd design it like that, but. You know, yep, I think it's going. Yep, yep, exactly. So that wraps up the this week in Australian history. Ah, I'm bloody thirsty now. Might be time for a beer. We are gonna go back to the women's sports. The theme of women's sports for this forex bottle top question, which. Uh, didn't actually come from a 4X bottle top. Uh, I wanted to find one specific to, to women's sports, seeing as that was our last topic. Uh, can you name, and I'll give you points for the obvious no. one. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you points okay, for the on. obvious one. But if you know the actual answer, because this person is, uh, uh, it's more recent, uh, you get full points. So, can you name Australia's most successful female Olympian? Most successful female Olympian. Oh. Does she play squash? No. Oh, damn it. Okay. So the two answers, they're both swimmers, of course. Oh. Um, think uh. of... Famous Haley Lewis? No. Oh, is it Dawn Fraser? It's not Dawn Fraser, but I'll give you half points for that because she was the most successful female Olympian for many, many years. Oh, She's only okay. been beaten in recent history. Do you know who the the new and actually to be fair, she abs she pretty much smashed Dawn Fraser's um Olympic record, so. Oh, no, I've got no idea. It's uh, a young lady called Emma McKeon. She's 
she's a swimmer. She holds. So Dawn Fraser holds eight Olympic medals, four gold and four silver, plus six Commonwealth Games gold medals. Um, Emma holds 11 Olympic medals, five gold, two silver, and four bronze. But she holds 14 golds at the Commonwealth Games. So Dawn Fraser. She held it for a very long time and was obviously oh. a huge Australian celebrity. So yeah. you definitely get points for picking her, but she has been surpassed in recent years. And like I said, uh, Emma kind of has blown it out of the water. Um, is which she is really still cool. swimming? I, I, I gotta, gotta say that I only very, very vaguely recognize that name. Is she, is she still going? I believe she's still competing. She, the last, she's still quite young. I think she's still like late 20s. Um, oh, wow. Okay. The, the, most of her medals came from the 2020 Summer Olympics in, in Tokyo. So mm-hmm. I would expect or like to see her uh, at the next Olympics. But again, I don't know. You know, these things, some of these Olympians don't, they don't have, you know, uh, the super long careers, and I, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, just because it's so hard to continue to be at that level, especially as you you know you start aging. Of course, Olympics is every every four years, so you sort of only get a, a few Olympics before probably someone a little bit younger than you starts starts smashing you out of the water, sort of thing. So, um, hopefully, she'll get into to the the new one. She did really, really well in the twenty twenty two Commonwealth Games. She won eight gold medals in the 2022 Commonwealth Games. So I would suspect her to be, you know, definitely a force to be reckoned with at the next Olympics. Um, Fingers crossed she she makes it. But, yeah, still swimming. Uh, There you go. So very cool. Oh, that was a good one. one. it's, it's, uh, It's good to have to be challenged. Honestly, if you asked me this, I would have no idea. I didn't know because I looked it up. <laughs> um, and actually, the answer, so where I got this from was like a pub trivia website, and, and they actually said Dawn Fraser. Um, and I was like, is she still? And so I Googled it, and it turns out, no, she's not. Um, so, yeah, that website uh, was called. Let me call it out because you're wrong. <laughs> it was freepubquiz.co.uk. Ah, oh, it's not even Australian. No wonder it's wrong. Um, <laughs> um, so there you go. Uh, so if you're uh, the, on the very freak chance you own freepubquiz.co.uk and you're listening to this, that question is wrong and you need to update, update your, your website. website. Update your bloody website. Uh, and on that bombshell, thank you so much for listening, for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks and remember, an r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you and good night. See you, DK. See you later.